Amen. Well, thanks. Thanks for being here. If you have a Bible, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 4 this morning. If you've been following along, you know um, that this is the part where we actually get into the hard stuff in the book. And so thus far has been letters and, hey, you've been this, you've been that. I, I want to encourage you. I want to call this out in you. You've seen stuff. And then now all of a sudden we're going to get to the wacky and the wild and the wonderful part of Revelation. And just want to say again that we are holding up for you. Um, one, because one of the great things about the Free Church this week, I actually had to sign my reaffirm that I believe everything I believe for the Free Church. They want, they want to know that every three years. And so I had to go through things. And one of the things that we have in our belief system, if you're a part of the Free Church, especially if you're a member, is we have something called the significance of silence. And it's specifically dealing with minor doctrines. So we like to say this, we major on the majors, we minor on the minors. And if it's a minor, we won't divide over it. Majors are what? Things like Jesus is the only way to salvation, his life, death, resurrection, ascension, and final return, and judgment of every human being that's ever been is essential and crucial. Those are major things. There is a heaven, there is a hell, there will be judgment, there will be an eternity, those kinds of things. But there are minors, and one of them would be how you actually interpret this book. And so we want to say that. I want to remind you of that every time we get in here, just because I know sometimes we've got, uh, we have our spiritual toes on these, in these places, and sometimes your spiritual toes get stepped on. And it's uncomfortable, but they are just toes, okay? We're not talking about major organs. We're talking about it could be this, it could be this. And so we're, gonna, we're trying to give you a framework that gives you a vision of Jesus, which hopefully makes you say, wow, he is awesome. That could be this or this, but either way, Jesus is amazing and beautiful, and so as we do Revelation chapter four this morning, I want you to hopefully, I feel like I'm getting a glimpse and a taste as, I, as I've studied it, but that you would get to experience what John experienced, that you would feel this part of you that would say, this is amazing. Now, I don't know if you've ever had an experience that was hard to describe for people and somebody asked you, how was it? And you're like, I... It was ah, awesome, amazing. Well, tell me something about it. I, I don't even know. It's just awesome. Now that drives my wife crazy when I say that. I need details. <laughs> like what actually happened? It was good. It was so good. Just great. And so, and, but I want you to at least have that category that it's okay to not have all of the details. I think God will give us some, but the reason I titled today, which was kind of funny because I, as I put somebody pinch me, I looked at my notes later on because a lot of times I make sure, you know, grammar, spelling, important, stuff like that. And so I go through and make sure that I don't have any typos and I had somebody punch me. <laughs> so maybe that is what needs to happen. But I want to experience, just for me personally, when I read this and I see John experiencing this encounter in heaven, I want to say what I think he was saying, which is, is this real? Is this actually happening? Somebody pinch me because I'm not sure what is real. So that's kind of where we're headed. I want to say one more thing as you approach this book. Uh, I love uh, several authors that I'm reading right now. Dallas Willard, I've been going uh, through The Divine Conspiracy. It's an awesome book if you're looking for something to encourage you about following Jesus. But he said this, imagine you were able to join the disciples and a bunch of people who were listening to Jesus. So there's hundreds of people gathered around. You actually get to step onto the scene, what you've always wanted to do. You're there where it's Capernaum or a Jerusalem or something. Everybody, you like, you show up and you're like, I'm here, I'm here. This is the place. And so what would you do? What would you, would you make a beeline for Jesus? Try to get, get as close as possible. Dallas Willard paints this really funny picture. Like, let's say you see the disciples, you see Peter standing there and you see all these people and they're all standing there and not a one of them has anything to write with. 
No notepads. Nobody's taking notes. And you go up and you're like, hey, I got my notes app here. And I would, I, I just want to know, like, what, Peter, why isn't anybody else taking notes? And I think Dallas Willard says it, and I think John would say it to us today. I think he would, because this is how they learned and how they experienced God back then. <laughs> they didn't have notepads. Nobody had Bibles. They listened. They listened and it became a part of them. And then they talked about it. And so I think John would encourage us today as we read, listen, don't worry so much about your notepads and getting all the details nailed down. So let's jump right in. Revelation chapter four, the first three verses. Here we go. It'll be on the screen if you don't have a Bible. After this, I looked and there in heaven was an open door. The first voice that I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here. I will show you what may, must take place after this. Now, anybody that's into wanting to know the details and trying to figure out the timeline, when they say, what may take place after this? You're like, wide eyes and the conspiracy theorists and the websites are going crazy trying to figure out, oh, he said it. He said after this. He said after this. These are the timeline. These are the events. Let's figure it out. Just listen. Just pause. Hold it. Immediately, I was in the spirit. And there was a throne in heaven, and someone was seated on it. The one seated there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian stone, a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald surrounded the throne. Now, after this, so the first thing he said, and so this is a trigger word for people who are wanting to figure out the timeline stuff. Um, some have argued that this is the cueing. Like a lot of people will say, here's the letters to the churches. And then as soon as that's done, it is like you've just tipped over an hourglass and everything that follows is how everything's going to unfold in the last days. So get your notepads out, get your canned goods and all your stuff up in the hills and be ready because it's happening. Okay. So after this though is used three or four more times in the book, chapter 7, 9, 15, 18, and 19. And in this instance, it's usually John just saying, it's a transition phase. He's, he's saying, I saw the churches and then I saw this. So that one is not a trigger. The second one though could be, because what does he say? I will show you what may take place after this. These are things that need to happen. And so that phrase Revelation 1.19, we heard it the first time. Remember, God spoke and he said, hey, write these things down. These things must take place. So it should trigger for us Daniel chapter 2. And John, like we've said, John is a kid in a candy store when it comes to the Old Testament. And though you may not think there's candy in the Old Testament, he does. And he is pulling from everywhere. You're going to see all kinds of books. So Daniel 2 is one of the first ones that he is thinking about when he's thinking last days and the things that must take place. And in that instance, it was Daniel speaking to Nebuchadnezzar, a king. And what was he telling about? Telling him about a kingdom that would come in the last days. And it would crush every other kingdom. Exciting. We are a timekeeping kind of people, right? We like to keep dates. I have appointments in my iPhone. I have reminders. I have second reminders. I don't know about you. I'm like at the time of the event, 15 minutes before the event, maybe a day before the event, maybe a week because I could forget. And then maybe even after the event, tell me I missed it. Like I, I am that, I feel like I'm just, it's just so much, I gotta, gotta do it. Like, even if I'm having a conversation with somebody, it's like, hey, hang on a second, let me grab my phone. Like, no, listen to me. I'm like, no, I am. I'm just putting it in here because I'm gonna forget if I don't. We're a timekeeping kind of people and we hear last days. And when people hear last days, they're like, it's ticking, the clock is ticking. I need to know what these things are gonna do and how, Lord, I wanna be inclined. I wanna get this. I've got this in my calendar here, Lord, last days events. Okay, whenever you're ready. Jesus, just, you know, go ahead whenever you're ready. Tell me the time. I'll, I'll set reminders. I'll be ready. And I think Jesus and John and many others and Dallas Willard would say, just listen. Just take it in. Think about it for a second. So the New Testament is actually consistent on how it describes the last days and when they are, believe it or not. 
Even though we would say, are we in the last days? And if you weren't here a few weeks ago, here is how the New Testament defines the last days. The time in between the resurrection of Jesus and when he comes back. Oh, so how long have the last days been so far? Well, about 2,000 plus years. Oh, that's long. And you should ask, why so long? Why is it taking forever? And here's the answer. People. People. He wants more people. He loves us. He loves your friends, your family, babies that are yet to be born, wants them as a part of his kingdom. And you're asking me, where is the New Testament consistent in defining the last days as the time between Jesus' resurrection and his return? Acts chapter 2, citing Joel 2, 1 Timothy 4, 1 Peter 1, Hebrews 1, James 5, 1 John 2, Jude 18, etc. It's all over the place. So it doesn't mean we shouldn't be expectant. It doesn't mean we should be like, oh, fine, then I don't care. We should still say, okay, but what about these things? So he is writing and he is, it's happening to them right then because Jesus has risen. So the things that are happening to those churches and the stuff that they're going through, it's happening, but it's also going to be happening in the future to churches like us, to people in the world. So he says, I heard a voice like a trumpet. Now, the reason I say this is because a lot of people read the after these things and they say, this is the moment when the church is out. This is the moment when the church is swooped away to be kept from all of the bad things. And the trumpet sound is when we're up and we're out of here and there's the door and we go. And they'll say things like, well, the church, the, the word church is not mentioned in the rest of the book of Revelation. It was in those first three chapters, but it's not mentioned anymore. And so the trumpet and we're out of here. And so isn't that what's happening? And a lot of scholars would say, well, another alternative because you, you see a word, no, you don't see the word ecclesia, which is for church, but you do see holy ones all throughout, which is a pretty good argument that we're actually here when the bad stuff is happening. And that's what we're going to be getting into. And, and lucky for you, Daniel gets to be the first one next week to tell you about some of the hard stuff. <laughs> but it's, it's the difficult plagues and the seals and the things being opened. It's a pretty good argument that we're actually present for those things. I heard a voice like a trumpet, not a trumpet. I heard a voice like a trumpet. This should also cue us to thinking about Old Testament passages. Blow the shofar. This is the voice of God. This is the voice of God that you're hearing, John. Gather and listen. God is speaking. Contrast this to what it takes to actually get a group of people to listen in our current time. And I don't mean like marketing, because people can gather around something that goes viral, and they're like, have you heard this, you heard this? But to get people to listen where they actually believe their life depends on it. We've had tiny moments of that, haven't we? Tiny moments. When COVID started, there actually was a really tiny window where we all gathered together and we were one and we we're like, okay, let's get through this together. And it took us about 10 minutes to be like, this is garbage. Who's doing this to us? Right? But there, wasn't there a brief moment when we were all feeling this like, this could be 9-11 was another one. I remember those first few moments when it was, you had the nation coming to prayer meetings. People who hadn't been in church forever thinking, this feels important. Maybe I should. And it didn't take as long before we were looking for enemies and seeing who we were supposed to hate. And we forgot about church. We've had these moments where we are hearing something. John is in a moment where the trumpet, it's a voice like a trumpet. And he knows I have to listen to this voice. And it's a cue for us as well. The voice of the Lord is the one we want to listen to. And what is he saying? Come up here. Come up here. A window, a door, a way forward. Come up here with me. I want to show you some things. The voice of God offering John an invitation. So question for you. If you heard the Lord asking you to come up to the throne room for five minutes, would you take it? Yeah. 
<laughs> yes, let's go. I don't want to listen to this guy anymore. Let's go and, and actually see something real in heaven. We would do it. Here's the other question that we should ask, though. Would it change you? Would it change you? Would it transform your life? John says, yes, it should. So there's an open door. And actually, there were apocalyptic stories and literature before this of people trying to get to heaven, trying to make a journey. In every one of those stories, it's really hard, dangerous, arduous, gates to go through, battles to be had. And it's all these stories of people trying to make it to get up to heaven and to get through to see God, to see eternity. In this one, he's just there. No difficulty, no danger, nothing to go through. God just says the door is open. If you're here a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the importance of Jesus being the one who opens doors that nobody can shut. He closes doors that nobody can open. And it's a door that we have to pay attention to. Jesus is inviting John. And, and I don't think, even though there are some that do think this is, the, is an indication of the rapture, of the church is going through this door and that's why they're out of there and the trumpet's sounding and we're, nothing bad's going to happen. Could be, but I think it's a, it's a little more compelling to say God is inviting all of us into his presence to see what he's doing, to see what is real into his throne room. And we shouldn't forget what Pastor Joe talked about last week with the church at Laodicea. When you think about doors, you don't want Jesus standing outside your door saying, let me in. Let me in. Walk through. Come up here. And what does he see? A throne and one sitting on it. Psalm 2, the nations rage. They shake their fists at God and they say, does he even know? Can he even stop us? We don't care what God says. And then God says this, I have put my king on the throne. Psalm 2, but it's actually everywhere in the Old Testament. Daniel chapter 7 recounts this scene. Ezekiel chapter 1 recounts this scene. Isaiah chapter 6, I saw the Lord seated high and I felt like I was going to die. John sees the same God sitting on the throne. I want you to get in your head, and I've said this image before, this metaphor, to think of it this way. When you read stuff in the New Testament like this, I want you to imagine that there are strings that attach all the way back. And so in this case, they attach to Daniel 7. They attach to Ezekiel chapter 1. They attach to Isaiah 6. They attach to Psalm 2. And when you read, I saw someone sitting on the throne, you need to imagine that those strings are being pulled and that there are little bells going off in the Old Testament. Ding, 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 ding. Yes, this is God. This is not a new thing that he's finally deciding to show up and do something. This has been planned all along. God wants us to see that he is seated on the throne. The one seated had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. Old Testament verses that mention these precious gems clue us into the fact that this is the presence of God. Ezekiel 1, what I just mentioned, Exodus 24, Moses and the elders go up. The pavement is clear and with precious gems and they're walking into the presence of God. This is an awesome place. It's also a cheat sheet. You move forward in Revelation, you know that these are gems that describe the new creation Bottom line, it's metaphor and it's image and it's symbolic to show you this is beautiful. This is divine. This is God's presence. You want to be here. He is on the throne. He is ruling and reigning. There's a rainbow. Where's there a rainbow in scripture? Yeah, the flood, Noah. It's an indication to John also ringing a bell in the Old Testament to say this is a God of mercy. This is a God who restrains and holds back punishment. He's hung up his bow. He's hung up his bow, this kind of bow. Think about it. He's hung it up and he says, I won't do this again. I will send one. And you've got these little clues in the Old Testament. One man and his family to represent humanity. You see this again and again. So God's, you're in God's presence G.K. Beale says this about these verses. John has been ushered into the timeless presence of God. 
the timeless presence of God and his heavenly court. And because it's a timeless dimension, just think about this for a second. Our ability to determine the timing of events will be difficult. Let me say it one more time. Because it's timeless, our ability to get our iPhones out and have our notepads and say, I know when this is going to happen, it's going to be really difficult because it's a timeless, it's timeless eternity. This is God's presence. But on the other side of this, the positive side, because it is timeless, it means that what is true and real is true for all time. Because he supersedes, he goes above and beyond. He's outside of time and space. And that we can understand what is real and what is true about this life and what we're going through based on who he is and what he has always been. So some examples of this. In a timeless dimension, nothing is yet to happen. Isn't that weird? To think about God that way? Nothing is yet to happen. We're going to read later in Revelation that he is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Why? Because it's the timeless presence of God. So let's make it personal. So then nothing or no one, as long as we're still here, is too far gone in a timeless dimension. God's love can read, because you ever, do you feel that way about your walk with Jesus sometimes? Some days you feel really good and you're pursuing and you think he must really love me today. And then you have an awful day. And I talked, I've talked to many of you sometimes we sit down, we'll talk and we'll pray. And you'll be like, I'm not, I've not been doing well. And I know I'm so, he must be really upset and really far. Not in a timeless, this is not how God works. He loves you no matter what. And so The days that you feel awful and you feel like you've just run so far from him, he would say, I love you exactly the same. So his love can be described as everlasting. His ways and truth are timeless and fixed. Why do you care? Questions we always want to ask about scripture. Why is this important? God's on a throne. He's in a timeless dimension. What does that matter to John who's in prison on Patmos? Exiled. What's that matter to the churches who are struggling, who are feeling the vice of persecution closing in on them, who are being mocked and ridiculed by the world that they live in, by Rome that is way more powerful, and who's saying, I can't believe you're following this dead guy named Jesus. Why are you guys doing this? It just, remember we've talked in the churches, they were suffering financially, they were suffering socially, some of them were being killed, some of them were being hurt, put in prison. Why do it? Why does it matter? And God says, because what is real is not what you see out here. What is real is the one who is seated on the throne, who has absolute and sovereign control and authority and power over the universe. Now, I know that's, we're kind of in this, like, it's this big thing, and it's, kind of, it's a little bit how I feel when I read Revelation sometimes. You're reading these things, and you're like, okay, let's, it needs to be personal for me. This is God's heavenly throne room. It's his temple and it's his courtroom. It's his courtroom. Should we expect a lawsuit? Yes, you should. In fact, many scholars believe this is a covenant lawsuit section of scripture. It's all leading to where God will preside as judge, prosecutor, and jury over a lawsuit. Let's read verse 4. Around the throne, here's where we get to some fun, interesting characters. There were 24 thrones, and on the throne sat 24 elders dressed in white clothes with golden crowns on their heads, flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder came from the throne. I'd like that in church. That's all I'm saying. Like if that, if a church had that, like not contrived, but real, would everybody go? Everybody would go. Have you been to that church? They don't do it with a sound system. It just like the, the roof opens up, roof, roof, however you say it up here. It opens up and every week there's the throne of God. There's lightning. It's crazy. Everybody's afraid. It's awesome. I go to that church. Which church is that? It's the thunder church. (laughs) We bring the thunder. God brings the thunder. Would we go? Sure we would go. And so just imagine he's not sitting there going, wow, lightning, thunder, rumblings. This is awesome. No, he's terrified. He's terrified. Seven fiery torches were burning before the throne, 
which are the seven spirits of God, something like a sea of glass. I love how John's always like, something like the appearance of, it was like, it was the appearance of, it kind of sounded like, you're like, say something real. <laughs> but he's trying to describe what is indescribable. Similar to crystal, similar, <laughs> not crystal, but similar to crystal. Something like, similar to crystal, was also before the throne. Four living creatures, these guys are Frankenstein experiments gone wrong. Just going to say before I even read it. Covered with eyes in front and back. I, I used some of, I've tried some of the AI artwork stuff and I tried to punch this into the AI artwork this week. It was the freakiest. I couldn't even, do, I didn't even, I was like, I'm not even going to do it. I'm not even going to show it on Sunday because it was, you're like, you're terrifying. You're terrifying. I just punched in these words. It's like, <laughs> like all these crazy creatures before the throne. You're like, okay, we're not going to show that one. So you'll see, I have something very benign and just, ah, this as a, for the point here in a minute, but eyes in the front and in the back around the throne on each side. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature was like an ox. The third living creature had a face like a man, I think. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. Each of the four creature, living creatures had six wings. And they were covered. Did I say they were covered with eyes? They are. It was not just around them, but it was also inside. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> like, did one of them open its mouth and it was like full of eyes? Is that how he knew? But eyes everywhere, eyes inside, six wings, like an ox, like an eagle, like a man. What, I, it was just bizarre. So you want to ask when you read stuff like this. And again, we would love to get our notepads out. We want to take note. We want details. What exactly is this? How do I know? And we're going to ask those questions. But why is the more important question? Why does John get to see this? Why do the churches that are suffering need to hear that John saw this? When a world that seems to have the power and authority over those churches to do whatever it wants. My summary answers for why is this. They're hurting. They're hurting because they're following Jesus. And it looks like somebody else is winning. You feel that way sometimes? Do you feel like somebody else is winning sometimes? Their position and their identity in Christ isn't merely mocked. It's punished. Sometimes prison. They're feeling isolated. Alone. You ever feel alone? Like they're losing. So why show John the throne with God sitting on it and these elders and these creatures surrounding? I don't think it was just to freak him out where he would walk away going, that was weird. He's, he's trying to teach us something. So let's look for context. Remember, we always want to ring bells in the Old Testament. Let's grab the string. What does it pull? Daniel 7, verse 9, as I kept watching, Thrones were set in place. Huh? We know that. We just heard it. The Ancient of Days took his seat. One seated on the throne. His clothing was white like snow, the hair of his head like whitest wool. His throne was flaming fire. Its wheels were blazing fire. A river of fire. Fire is a theme. Was flowing. Coming out from his presence. I love this part. It's probably one of my... I remember this constantly. This phrase. Thousands upon thousands served him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. What's scripture trying to say? Billions and billions. <laughs> Just so many before him, serving him, around him. And then listen to this. Remember we mentioned heavenly courtroom, lawsuit. The court was convened and the books were opened. So we're ringing the bell and we watch John describing the same thing. And we say, this isn't just God's throne room. This isn't just his dwelling place, his temple. This is court. This is court. What's happening? Thrones are in place. Books are open. So obvious question, who are the 24 elders? Surprise, surprise, identifying them has been the topic of much debate throughout the centuries. <laughs> There's like so many ideas. Honestly, sometimes when I listen to scholars and I listen to one guy and he's a podcast and I, I feel like I'm going to fall asleep when I'm listening to him. He's like, you know, this could be the blah, blah, blah. Or some scholars have thought the blah, blah, blah. And I want to go, 
I want to find you and hurt you. <laughs> That's what I want to do right now. <laughs> but I listen through because I want to know. And sometimes I just want to say, could you just summarize for me and do it with a little bit more enthusiasm? But uh, the priestly order in the Old Testament had 24 divisions. So some said maybe that. Uh, there were 24 books that the Jewish writers assigned to the Hebrew scriptures before we kind of put it together um, with the, the Old Testament, New Testament canon. Maybe that. 12 tribes, 12 disciples, apostles, kind of representing the new people of God, Israel, and those who have been grafted in. I lean to that one a little bit, but I'm going to tell you why. I think they, and this is what they said, they, they symbolically, because anything John is seeing for sure is symbolic. It doesn't mean it isn't real, okay? But he, he, you can't see exactly what is happening. He's getting images. That's why he keeps saying like, similar to, it was like, it was like. And so he sees these elders and who are they? They represent the people of God. I think leaning towards there are 12 in the Old Testament, 12 tribes and the 12 disciples and the new people of God, the new creation. They are wearing white, dressed in the righteousness of God. They are wearing golden victory crowns. But there's obviously, if this is the, representing the 12 apostles, who's one of the people watching this right now? One of the apostles. <laughs> so there's a problem. There's a not yet to it that's already happening. He isn't there yet surrounding the throne. He's just participating. He's observing what's happening. He's watching this as one of the apostles. So you know it's something. There are, there are heavenly creatures that represent the church. Now we can flip back like two chapters to say, write this to the angel of the church of Winona, Pleasant Valley. So there, there's definitely heavenly representation it doesn't matter as much um, exactly who they are, because we're going to see how important their role is and what they're doing. But how about the living creatures? Most would say also heavenly beings who represent all animate life on the earth. That's why you have all the creatures a little bit. I was like, okay, interesting. This part was what I was drawn to. Those who serve God and guard the way to his throne. Cherubim, which is different from straight up messenger angels that we usually think about. Cherubim were the ones guarding the way, guarding the way to the presence of God from this realm. Their eyes symbolically represent the truth that they and God see everything. Eyes around, eyes inside, eyes outside. In this courtroom, there will be no shenanigans. In this courtroom, there will be no loopholes. God will be judge, prosecutor, jury. And his case that he brings will be rhetorical, meaning, no, I'm not looking for a counter argument. It's just going to be. The eyes, because in the other, in the Daniel passage, it talks about the throne has eyes. So it's mentioning to you that God rules, he's seated, he's sovereign, and he sees everything. There's nothing outside. Why show this to John? To confuse him, to make him say, well, that's interesting and cool. Why show this to the churches then who are struggling? Why show it to us? I think God wants us to know something huge. We have representation around God's throne. You have somebody representing you. And Daniel will get to this, but in the very next chapter, when John doesn't know what's going on and when something happens that he's upset about in the throne room, who reaches down to tell him, hey, 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 wait, 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 it's one of the elders. So they're actually key to helping us understand we have representation. So when you see these elders, when you see these creatures gathered around the throne of God, be assured of something. It's not the only thing. It's not the one thing, but I'm going to say something. And it's this, home. Home, your home is God's throne. It's where you're supposed to be. It's supposed to be our future, dwelling with him. Your home is God's throne. This isn't some weird dream that doesn't relate to your everyday life, although we can think it is. It does seem a little odd. 
This is a glimpse into our true place of rest, joy, and life. But my home has flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and I don't think I can sleep with that. It's difficult. And a sea of glass. What is that? Again, ring the Old Testament bells. Exodus 19, Moses is called up to the mountain. And what is happening on the mountain? <laughs> Thunder, clouds, thick darkness. What is this? This is the presence of God. And God said something then. He said, don't touch it. Everybody, don't touch Moses. Tell them, do not touch the mountain or you will die. And they're like, okay. The exception is here. What is God saying? Come on up. Come on up. Old Testament, Exodus 19. Moses, you, the one person, must represent the people. Does that sound familiar? One person to represent us. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Why can we come next week? You're going to get the full details on why you're even allowed to be there. But one to represent, so come on into the presence of God. No fear of what will happen to you. One man to represent. The sea of glass has been connected to the temple with the bronze sea that was used for purification. It's been connected to, it is the separation between the down there and the up here. The one I'm drawn to is this. It's calm. It's still. Meaning, Old Testament even into New Testament, whenever you see waters and chaos, it's always this thing that's like, <gasps> that represents destruction. And God says, he stills it. So you're invited. Your home is here. God stills the chaos. What's everybody doing around this throne? We'll finish with this last few verses. Second part of verse eight, day and night. They never stop saying, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, the Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to the one seated on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before the one seated on the throne and worship the one who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns. You already got two hymns that have been hit there, haven't we? Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, crown him with many crowns, you know, casting down their royal crowns around the glassy sea. You guys know these songs? Come on. So yeah, these are, these are hymn writers that are grabbing these beautiful images. They cast their crowns before the throne and say, O Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you have created all things and by your will they exist and were created. Author Elizabeth Fiorenza asks a great question for understanding what you're reading. What does a reading of the whole book, but let's just say it for this part. What does a reading of Revelation chapter 4 do to somebody? What's it do to you? What's it supposed to do to you? They never stop saying, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, and is to come. In high school, we went on a retreat and I had a, one of our good friends, a choir director came on. He was one of our leaders, really good friend of mine. And he did this seminar on these verses. And he had us all gather around the room, find a spot in the room. And for 20 minutes, you're going to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And I, we did that. And I thought, I have made a terrible mistake. <laughs> if this is heaven, I have made a terrible mistake. I don't want to repeat things for 20 minutes. I think maybe I was missing something. What do you think? Because <laughs> John isn't writing this going, you wouldn't believe it. Those people wouldn't stop saying that thing over and over. I was like, can you say something else? I'm taking notes on my iPhone, like for the rest of the people down there. No, he's in awe. He's in awe as he's watching this happen. I think we misunderstand worship. I misunderstand worship. I don't get it. It's not just what we do in here. This is like one tiny sliver. And I think our world doesn't understand it either. And sometimes when they think about us and worship, like it's, you guys sing, we know, and you pray, right? That's, go for it. Awesome. Yeah. 
But nobody wants to do that for more than like a few minutes, not 20 minutes. Oh my goodness, can't say those things over and over again. So what am I not getting? What may we be misunderstanding? I love, um, you guys know I love movies and books, but one of them is a book and a movie, Contact by Carl Sagan. Not a believer in Jesus, but I think there were parts where he was tapping into deep spiritual things. And if you don't know that movie or that book, I'm going to spoil it. Sorry, it's old. So even though I think it was like 90, 1990 something, 98, maybe Contact came out, which is not that long ago for me. Some of you are like, what? Um, And some others are right, right there with me like, oh yeah, it was like yesterday. But in this book and movie. Um, There's a scientist. She is an atheist. Her name is Eleanor Arroway, and she studies the stars, and she is listening for extraterrestrial life. And Radio Telescope listens. It's, I love, love this book and this movie. So listening, you can just feel it. Like, everybody thinks she's nuts, just crazy, SETI, which, by the way, if you, I don't know if you knew this, you could actually allow your computer to be used by SETI, Search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Didn't know if you knew that. You could loan your CPU power and jump right into helping listen to the stars. So if anybody wants to know how to do that, talk to me afterwards. Um, <laughs> but you can do that if you want. But so she's listening and everybody thinks, that, you know, that's a waste. Why are you doing that? Until she hears a message coming from light years away. And the world responds when it's real. The world responds when it's real. The government trucks pull up, the news stations, everybody's coming to this place in New Mexico where she heard the message. She's just trying to do her work as a scientist and all the religious groups are showing up and all these people dressed in green men outfits and worshiping. We worship this. This, The message was coming from a star system called Vega and they're like, hail to Vega. Like it's just totally this crazy uproar. And so as a Christian, sometimes we watch that kind of stuff and we're like, that's not right. Why can't they get it right in Hollywood? And so I I want to encourage you, just put that aside. (laughs) Like sometimes you can just enjoy a good story and you can see the underlying desire. Because for her, hearing this message and pursuing it was a lifelong dream. And she pulls up in the middle of this chaos to get, trying to get in there and to keep working on deciphering the message. And she sees this hellfire preacher and he is preaching to all these people. And then he catches her eyes and he's like, do you want these people, these scientists? Of course, he's got a Southern accent too. Um, Talking to your God, is that what you want? And it's like, there's hellfire posters. And she's kind of driving and going, okay. And they've made it pretty clear in the book that she doesn't believe that she went to Sunday school. So there's still this desire in her to connect with something out there, this longing. And so one of the climax points of the movie, it was a message from space. They have built this transport thing and she gets to go and she is traveling through this wormhole. You have to see it to believe it. It's pretty cool and awesome and gets to some distant galaxy where a star or a galaxy is kind of being formed and created and it's happening. And as she gets there, like it stops her and she's kind of floating, looking at it and her eyes are filled with tears. And so bear in mind the Christians that she saw before, which I forgot to mention, there were people gathered around this preacher and here's what they were doing. They were going, praise God, praise God. Just like that. Praise God. I'm like, Come on. Like, we're not, that is not how we are. Do you ever see, that's, that, it's okay to, at some points to say that doesn't represent who people that follow Jesus are. So bear in mind, that's what she's thinking. She's thinking they're way off. She sees this galaxy being born and overwhelmed and tears and she's floating there. And she says, she's a scientist, but she has no words that accurately. And she says, some celestial event. I, no words, no words. They should have sent a poet. They should have sent a poet. 
I remember watching that. Just, I was like, oh, it's this over. And you know, the conclusions that Carl Sagan comes to and all and the movie, fine. No, of course they don't come to. And therefore Jesus came and died on the cross. Like they don't do that. But what are they, what are they saying? What is she longing for? She wants to put her affection and her worship towards something beautiful. That's what you walk away from in a story like that. You're like, yes, of course you long to do that because worship is the heartbeat of the cosmos. You take a pulse of the universe. Worship is looking for an object. We all worship. You've heard that phrase. It's just a matter of what it is. Worship is the heartbeat of the cosmos. Not some dry religious thing that you should know, put in your box of understanding the kingdom of God and a little thing you do on Sunday, but part of your very core, part of you that is in awe that says, I don't have words. They should have said a poet. I don't have words for what I'm seeing. So they're giving glory and honor and thanks and they're falling down and they're worshiping and they're taking off their crowns, their achievements in life, their status, their power, what they think is important. And they're going, no, it's yours. I wouldn't even have any of this if it wasn't for you. All of it belongs to you. All of it belongs to you. You alone deserve worthy glory, honor. You are worthy to receive glory and honor and power. Because where did they get those crowns from God? How can we do this in our lives now? This is submission. This is bowing and humble reverence. This is getting before the only authority, the one on the throne, recognition of his control of our lives, of him being the source of all that we have. We can't do anything on our own. Nothing we accomplish in this life could ever happen if we're not on the throne. So I want to just throw this out as we finish. And I stole this from Scott McKnight. Worship of God on the throne and the Lamb, which you will meet next week, is required to comprehend the rest of the book. It is required. Remember we said chapter 1, verse 3, blessed are those who hear, and that's code for obey in Scripture. Blessed are those who hear, read, and hear the words of this prophecy. Here's your second code way to interpret. You must be in a framework of worship. It's required to understand the things that are going to be out and, and difficult things that we're going to see. Worship is what John gets to see. It's crucial for our understanding. This is a good heart and gut check for me. And maybe it is for you as well. But when I'm in disagreement with what I perceive God to be doing in the world, are you ever in disagreement with what you perceive God to be doing in the world or not doing? Yeah. If you're a human being, that's usually where prayer starts, right? What are you doing? Why are you not doing this? When I'm there... It's where the rub is, isn't it? That's where we have issues, but it's also the greatest place of sanctification where God will do some things in our life. Do I put those questions and those struggles through a worship framework or do I put them through my own wisdom? John is saying and experiencing and God is calling us, worship is required. Give it to him. But Lord, I need, I need details. I want you to, as we just, I'm going to finish with this. John is, let's say you got a spot next to John. So let's switch from you standing around the disciples and talking to Peter. Let's say you get those five minutes and it's actually when John is there and you're in there and you're in awe and you can sense the emotions and everything's welling up in you as well. And you're looking at what's happening around the throne. And you're like, those guys look weird with all those eyes, but this is awesome. And you turn to John and you say, hey, can I ask? And he's like, not right now. <laughs> I just went, no. And so you're like, oh yeah, okay, okay, right. And, and then John says, this is about him. Now there would be a time in my Christian walk where I would be like, yeah. And I would back up and go, you're right, you're right. I'm just in dust and ashes, nothing. I'm nothing. And he's like, no, 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 that's not what I mean. 
This is about him and it's about us. This, all of this is about him and it's about us. It's about our future. We were made for this. We were made for this. It's always been this way. We just haven't been able to see. If that's where you are today. It's a good chance. That's where I am. Unable to see, we say, Lord, give us understanding because this is home. This is home. Get up here. This is home. This is where you're supposed to be giving your worship to the God on the throne and the Lamb whom you will meet next week. This is life. And where we don't have understanding and where that doesn't connect, then we keep leaning in and asking the Lord to give us understanding. This is home. This is true. This is real. And John would say, put down your notebook. Just look. Just look. Let's pray. Lord, I, you know this, I do not pretend to uh, give any kind of exhaustive uh, description or thorough. Um, here's everything that could be said about this passage. You know that I faithfully just try to sit with you and Lord, do my very best to understand. And I have even said to you, Lord, it's, it's at this place where I am longing and needing to experience myself the things that John and these early church people uh, who were struggling needed to experience as well. And so God, would you give us understanding? Or would you give us um, just the beauty of knowing who you are, Lord, that you are seated on the throne, that we can trust you, that we can give our lives to you, all of us, Lord, our crowns, or the things that we hold dear and that are important to us, God, that we can cast them to you and say, I trust you, God. Lord, we pray um, for those Old Testament strings to be pulling on bells, Lord, in our own hearts, where we would say this God from creation, this God from the Exodus, this God who saved a family in the flood, this God is calling us into his presence. Lord, we love you. We thank you for uh, how good you are. Um, I pray you would use this uh, just last bit of worship in music, Lord, to uh, draw us into worship for this week. And we ask this in Christ's name, amen.